In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Of what value is a human soul? Billions have come before us, and billions are in the world today, and at rush hour they all get on the freeway in front of you. Of what value is the human soul? On any given day, our smartphones feed us a global picture, a distorted and biased picture to be sure, but a global picture of the mass corruption and villainy of human beings, of the passing triumphs and lasting sorrows that come upon us, of one death after another. Drive up to Los Angeles, or rather don't, that would be my advice, but if you do have to drive up to Los Angeles, then take note of the landscape and imagine the millions of people in skyscrapers and mansions, in houses and apartments, in the slums and in tents on the streets. Millions of people living lives of quiet or not so quiet desperation. And you and I are no different. If you've been on a flight and looked down over a city at the countless cars going this way and that, then you know that you too are just that small, like a grain of dust in a dust storm, or a blade of grass in a vast field. We're here, we flower, we fade, we're gone. Of what value is the human soul? One of the many astonishing things that Jesus taught was that there is joy in heaven over one sinner, over one single soul who repents. One lost sheep, one lost coin, one speck of dust, one blade of grass. <clears throat> one single person in the thronging mass of humanity returned and reconciled to God. There's not only joy in heaven, Jesus says, but joy before the angels of God over one sinner, one soul who repents. Of what value, then, is the human soul? It's hard for us to even imagine or picture what Jesus teaches, angels and all of heaven rejoicing over one sinner. And a sinner of, well, it doesn't matter what of, whether wealthy or poor, whether intelligent or stupid, whether clean or dirty, whether moral or immoral, great or small. The angels don't see things the way we do. Over one single soul that repents, they rejoice. Now, in principle, of course, we would agree we're good Christians after all. We would say that every soul is of equal value. And yet what we find in our own hearts, at least if we're being honest, is that, well, some souls are slightly more equal than others. The human heart is constantly making judgments based on race or creed 
or economic status, based on value to oneself or one's family or one's own interests and ends. This is simply the way human beings are. This is simply the way the world works. But as Jesus reminds us, this is simply not the way the angels are. This is simply not the way that heaven works. And therefore, we Christians who have been born from above, who have been born of water and spirit, we who are new creations and children of God, are called to think differently than the world does, to perceive things differently, to perceive the people around us differently. Not as obstacles or commodities or means to an end, but rather as they truly are and as they truly are in God's sight. For he, along with the angels and all of heaven, rejoice over one sinner who repents, over one single son who tires of the pig slop and makes his way home. C.S. Lewis' words are a fitting reminder. There are no ordinary people, he writes. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Lewis is simply building on what Jesus has taught and what a difference it would make in our own nation, in our present culture. What a difference it would make in our own lives, lives if we realize that every last person we see and interact with, every last person who cuts us off on the freeway, or espouses politics different than ours, or schools their children in a different manner, or drops snark in one of our social media accounts, or espouses different thoughts and beliefs, if we realize that every last person we encountered is an immortal soul, and that that immortal soul, each and every person, will exist forever, whether in a state of alienation from God or in a state of reconciliation with God. And then we ask ourselves, what role will I play in that person's eternal destiny? The message that God sent into the world, first through the prophets and now in these last days through Jesus Christ, is that he desires reconciliation with every single person. Indeed, so much so that he sent his own son to pay the cost of that reconciliation, to shed his holy, innocent blood on the cross in order to make atonement for the very things that have alienated not only us, but all people from him. What we as a race have done is cut ourselves off from the one who is meaning and purpose and life. So it is that we are spiritually lost and dead. But in Christ, we have now been made alive precisely because he has brought us back to the one who is life, to himself and his Father. 
We have been given meaning and purpose and hope precisely because we have received the one who is meaning and purpose and hope, our Lord Jesus. And he now enlightens our eyes to increasingly see the people around us as they truly are and as he sees them. So this gift of God, this grace, this forgiveness, along with this newness of mind and newness of perception, this fresh start and ever new reality is meant for all. For us and for people of every race and people and tribe and tongue, along with every good guy and every loser, every winner and every weirdo, the gospel of reconciliation, of God's forgiveness in Christ's death and resurrection goes forth to every last soul, including me and including you. Around Jesus is always gathered sinners and sinners only. And so in his ministry, it was a group of tax collectors and sinners gathered around him, traitors and 'er ne'er-do-wells, thieves and prostitutes, lost sheep, lost coins, and lost sons, who, in Christ Jesus, were being reconciled and brought back to God. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus spoke to his disciples about these little ones, as he called them. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Except that's not really what he said. A far better translation of the Greek is this, temptations to fall away are sure to come. Temptations to be ensnared, to turn away from Jesus and away from God, these are sure to come. That's what Jesus was saying. So he says to his disciples, temptations to fall away are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. These are immortal souls that you are dealing with. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away. What is the value of a human soul? And in our gospel text today, Jesus shows it. It would be better to die the worst possible temporal death you can imagine than to live and be the cause of an immortal soul falling away from Jesus and being alienated from God for all eternity. So pay attention to yourselves, Jesus warns. And how are we to keep our brother in Christ, from falling away from Christ. Jesus says very simply, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a single day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is Law and Gospel 101, Compliments of Jesus. The impenitent brother, rebuke. The penitent brother, forgive. Increase our faith, the disciples say, and rightly so. It's our prayer too. 
And what Jesus says to them, he says to us, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could speak and the impossible would happen. You could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. A mustard seed is a tiny, insignificant little seed. And so, too, it's not the faith itself that's powerful or impressive. Rather, it's what we place our faith in. It is God who is powerful and impressive. And it is God who will use our words, both our rebukes and our forgiveness, in order to do that which is otherwise impossible. To uproot the hardened sinner from the earth and plant him in the sea of God's everlasting grace. Which is precisely what Jesus' disciples begin to do in their preaching, in their rebuking, and in their forgiveness, in their law and in their gospel. And this is precisely what we are called to do in our vocations. With the word of God on our lips, we care for the immortal souls that God has placed into our lives, and not a single one has been placed there by chance. We look for mulberry trees to be planted in the sea, for fellow sinners to be reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And so we are called to this high and holy honor to do the work of Jesus with Jesus and so ever become more as he is and more like our Father who is in heaven. Now, lest we get big heads about increasingly seeing the world as it truly is and about this honor and work that Jesus has given us to do. He reminds his disciples and us what our proper attitude is and should be. When you have done all that you are commanded, he says, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And indeed, we are unworthy, aren't we? We haven't always done what is our duty. This is true. Therefore, let us repent and let us, too, receive full forgiveness from our risen Savior. Sevenfold forgiveness that flows from his cross to the chalice to you this very day. His blood cleansing you from all your sins and enlightening the eyes of your faith so that with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we too would rejoice over one sinner who repents. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.